Whenever we talk about legacy, what do people remember about you? Well, these women, God takes time. And the book of Hebrews is full of people. God says, I want you to remember their faith. Ah, yes. But we also have scriptures that talk about remembering somebody's disobedience too. Remember the children of Israel? God takes time to point out in the scriptures. He says, now listen, I want you to remember the children of Israel, how they were disobedient in the Old Testament as well. And says, don't fall like they fell. Thousands of them in the wilderness. So now what will be our legacy? What will be yours and my legacy tonight? When people remember us, are they going to be uh, encouraged are they going to be maybe stimulated to greater devotion? Or are they going to say, you know, they had so much potential, but they never realized it. What is going to be said about us? So maybe we'll be remembered for our humor. Maybe we will be remembered for our cooking. Maybe we want to be remembered for helping others. Maybe we'll be remembered for helping ourselves. You see, Everything we do in this life is creating a memory in someone about us. And often at funeral services, people will recall what is that person, what was really important to that person. Now, why do I bring this all up? In the book of Proverbs, and like I said, I, I am trying to skip along tonight pretty quickly, so I'm going to ignore some of my notes. But I will tell you to look at a phrase that's found in the book of Proverbs often. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that an unwise person does not consider the path of their feet. They don't consider their decisions. They don't consider the impact their decisions are going to have. They don't consider the consequences of their behavior. And the Bible says that's a sign of an unwise person. An unwise person, uh, uh, a harlot even, it says in that, does not ponder the path of their feet. But it says, it goes on in other passages to say, the righteous do ponder the path of their feet. Now that's what they're talking about. In other words, those who are wise, and I'm taking that tonight, that's everybody, young and old, that we need to ponder what kind of consequences our decisions are going to have. You know, whenever I was in school, being young and sometimes being a little naive, we talked about careers and, and whether we could be Christians and have certain types of careers. I was really into music in school, and I pondered the fact of whether I could be a musician and be a successful Christian. In fact, I knew I could be. That was one of my things. I was going to be a successful musician and a Christian at that time. I had organized several bands. I had organized music. I knew how to run a a recording studio and I really enjoyed music and that's it now listen Glenn you need to consider that not many people in this field are Christians and many of the parameters they have in in, the, in their lifestyles a lot of things they promote are are not going to be supportive of the Christian lifestyle you need to consider that you know what I am thankful that my father had that conversation with me because it did help it helped me in making a decision. I realized it wasn't about everything I wanted, that I had to consider whether I was going to have a family and whether this was going to support me having a strong family, whether it was going to support me in my attendance at church services, which are so important, whether it was going to in somehow inhibit or be a weight 
which does pull me back, always pulling me back in the world and never letting me be all that I could be for God's glory. So young people, whenever your parents sit down and talk to you and they want you to consider your careers that you're thinking about, and you're talking about college, and you're talking about what you want to be when you grow up, I want you to know that the Bible says you're wise if you ponder the path of your feet. That you need to have those conversations. You need to ask yourself if this is a wise choice and a good decision and what it's going to cost me later down the line. It may cost you your family. It may cost you like Lot. It may cost you all of your wealth if you make wrong choices or unwise choices in the future. So this issue is often brought up in the scriptures and he says for us to consider this idea of legacy. What kind of impact are you gonna have on your wife, on your children, on the church, on yourself, and most of all on God? We need to think about those kinds of things whenever we make career choices, whenever we choose someone to marry. We need to consider those choices as well. Whether this person is going to help me be a successful Christian or do they just look good. Whether this person's going to help me make wise decisions. Whether they're going to be a good father and a good mother. You know, I've done a lot of family counseling in the last, in the last few years. And, uh, you know, I've talked... During those sessions, sometimes a a woman will say, you know, I just don't want any children at all. I just want to have just me and my husband, and that's it. I don't want to have any children at all. And I'll ask the men, have you considered whether you wanted to be a father or just a husband? And he'll say, I've I've considered it, and I want to be a father. You know what? That's caught, that, that helped. That young man had to choose someone else to marry because his wife obviously did not want children, but he wanted to be a father. You know, those things are important whenever you choose someone to marry and about the impact it's going to have. When, before I married Reba, I said, Reba, I want to be an evangelist. I want to travel all over the world. Have you ever considered going to Africa? Well, no, I've never considered leaving Texas. You know? That's a, and I said, well, I want you to think about that. You know what? She's, she's talked about that. She said, you know, I had to think about that. I had to think about being drugged all over the world. Some people don't like to travel. <laughs> Some people love to travel. You see, who you married can have an impact on your choices in your life. So, whenever you're making choices, the Bible says, ponder the path, the direction, the consequences of your choices and decisions. Notice also, the Bible tells us that there will either be praise or shame brought up later on. In Proverbs, the 27th chapter, in verse 21, Listen to the scriptures. The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. Each man, but each is tested by the praise accorded to him. Each is tested by the praise accorded to him. Whether we accomplish our goal at legacy or not is very, very important. In Hebrews 11 and verse 4, a verse we already read, Abel 
had a testimony that he was pleasing to God, and even though he was dead, he still spoke. He still stood for something. You know, all of us here, I'm sure, can think of someone who may probably be dead, but had an impact on our spirituality. Think about that for a moment. I know my grandfather, Grandpa Otis Osborne, and he had an impact. He made a choice to follow the Lord. He made choices that had impact on my father. My father had impacts on us children, and we'd have impact on others for generations. For generations, there's impact. Perhaps you have those in your life as well. You can think of those significant people that were really there at particular times that encouraged you to make certain choices and certain decisions. Now the question is, is not only is this prayed accorded to others, let's talk about what message you're sending out. What's going to be the message whenever you're dead and yet you still speak? What is your life is going to say, what in your life is going to say this is important or that is important? This is something significant. I want this message to go on. You know, I've thought about that. I've really thought about that. And I've told my wife, I've told my kids and everything else. I said, listen, I do not want an expensive funeral. That to me is the most foolish waste of money in the world. I said, if you guys get money together, tell everybody that I want Reba to be helped out. You know, I don't want her killing me to cash out on the insurance policy, but the whole point is, is it's foolish to spend something on, I can't smell any of those flowers. And to me, that's not even really, in one sense, honorable. I told her, I said, kids, mom's gonna bury me in cardboard and I don't want you giving her one flack about it at all. I don't want any flack at all. I want the cheapest funeral that money can buy and if you could skip the funeral, that's fine. You know, I just want it cheap. Because death is not the important point about life. Death, that's not it, you know? It's not honoring to me to be buried in something that's going to continue to send her bills. That is the dumbest thing in the world. It really is. It, it really, I get no honor from that. In fact, it's irritating to even think that somebody might make money off of my death. It just it irritates me. But I'll tell you what, it would be a real blow if my death didn't send a message about what was important in my life. I want to make sure everyone understands that message before I'm silent and can no longer repeat it. Don't you? Don't you want a legacy? Don't you want some kind of, of message? Don't you want people to say, this was important to him or her? I'll tell you what, don't wait till you're dead for people to discover it in your will. It's got to be something that's plain and understood before you ever bite the dust, as they say. It's got to be plain. And that's what the Bible says to us. Each is tested by the praise accorded to him. It is important that we consider our legacy. Lewis Carroll, whenever he wrote Alice in Wonderland, he made a point about legacy and people not going anywhere. He said this, he says, when you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. <laughs> and I think that's a real important point. I hope you caught his real message. In other words, if you're not going anywhere, it doesn't matter what road you choose. But if you're going to heaven, you're going to have to choose a road. You're going to have to take the path, and it leads you in a certain direction. 
And that's what we need to tell our kids. It's not, we're not supposed to have aimless lives as Christians. We have goals. We have aspirations. And the Bible tells us if we have this hope fixed on Him, it has an impact in our life. It purifies our life. We have as our ambition, whether alive or dead, to be pleasing to Him and to have heaven as our home forever. That is our hope. That is our expectation and our joy. We have something that we want to say by our life. I'm going to heaven and I want you to come too. I'd like you to travel this path. I want you to go in this direction. The Bible says we're not as those who aim. In fact, the King James, is, it's kind of difficult the way it puts it. But he says there in 1 Corinthians 13, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> we're not those who box as beating the air. And what does that mean? He's saying a boxer, whenever he gets into the ring, his point is not just to beat air. It's not to aim at nothing and hit nothing. Whenever a boxer aims, he wants to hit something, doesn't he? He wants to hit the other guy's jaw. He wants to hit the other guy's stomach. He wants to make contact with the person in the opposition. That's what a boxer does. If a boxer just got out there and danced, you'd think, what in the world? You would think he's not a good boxer. He's a great dancer, but he's a poor boxer. This says, we're not boxers who beat the air. What is the point of that little verse? Aim, not without aim. We are not supposed to be aimless people. We're supposed to have a target. We're supposed to be going somewhere with our life. And that needs to be spelled out really clearly. Businesses have purpose statements. And sometimes we need purpose statements for our life as well. We need to say to people, here's what I want to do with my life. I want to accomplish something. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> when you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. And there's a lot of people that never go anywhere in their life because they've never made a decision to go down a road. They've never made a decision to go in any direction. Sometimes we have too many options and we need to narrow down our options, if you will, and recognize that once we make a decision that our narrow, our choices are going to be more limited. We're a people who love all the options in the world, but sometimes we have so many options we never pick any options and that is a vast mistake. That's a vast mistake. We need to pick some options. Now, yes, that'll limit us in our life. But that's not necessarily bad. When you choose to become a Christian, you are making a choice. You're saying, I'm going to be a Christian, and I'm going to have a job that falls within the parameters of morality, that falls within the parameter of Christian ethics. That means I can't do a lot of things that would violate the will of God. You can't pick jobs that violate the word and the will of God in your life. Now, we've talked about this before. We can't be, you can't be hit men. <laughs> you can't do a lot of things. You can't be a constant liar. You can't be something that neglects your home or neglects the worship of the church. You're eliminating a lot of those professions that would call you to compromise your morality. And yes, whenever you become a Christian, you may have to change your jobs. We've talked about that before. But you're also limiting yourself in some other ways as well. You have to ask yourself, is this job going to take up, sometimes you have to ask, 
is this not going to take up too much of my time? One of the greatest challenges facing the church in this generation, not the next one, in this generation, is the fact that we have so much time. We're not spending it doing evil and being wicked. We have so many options of things to do that we are so busy doing the urgent that we fail to do the important. And the real challenge of the church in this generation is limiting the things we choose to do during our days and evenings so that we will get the important things done. It's not wrong that we have so many things to do in our life. The thing that becomes wrong is when our life is filled with so many good things, so many okay things, that we never get the important things done. Now, church, do, you, we, all, do we all agree that there's a lot of church members that aren't doing wrong things, wicked and evil things. They're doing good things, a lot of good things that are okay to do. But their life is so full of good things that they sometimes miss the important things. They get choked out by the cares and concerns of this world. And we forget what our legacy is. Do you want people to say at your funeral, you know, they were into everything. They were busy to the hilt. But you know, for the life of me, none of it lasts past the grave. Is that what you want somebody to say about you? They were good at sports. They were good at recreation. They were good. They had a good time, but they're dead, and they can't do everything they enjoyed any longer. But nothing of what they did outlasted death. Nothing was important. In other words, once they died, that was it. There wasn't anything important that lasted past it. Emerson once said, who was a good poet and writer, he said, the great use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. There's the key. I want to do something that lasts past my death. Don't you? And that's what we're talking about when we say legacy. That helps us make decisions about how busy we need to be. Sometimes we need to maybe cut down on things that are so busy in our life. So many options, so many things that are good and have a Bible study with our family. Sometimes we just need to stop and pray with our children because even though they may be learning a lot of athletic skills, maybe they're learning a lot of academic skills, maybe they're learning a lot of skills, but my friends, if they don't know God, whenever they die, you failed. And I failed because that's what's really important. Oh, you can teach your children math and hire a tutor. But how about spending your time teaching your child to pray to God, to read their Bible habitually? That's what I'm talking about. It's not that we're doing evil, church. It's that we're so busy taking care of the urgent that we leave out the important. And so that's why we need to come back and ask ourselves, let's ponder the path of my feet. So what if my child knows how to play every game in the book? So what if my child knows every TV character in the book? Sometimes I need to turn it off and spend time making sure he knows the characters in the Bible. That he knows what happened and why Moses happened. 
What happened with the children of Israel? What Noah was all about? Why these people were important and that person was made note of in the scriptures. Do your children know Bible characters? Let's just ask yourself. You might say, I would like to do that, but I don't spend enough time doing that. That's whenever you ponder the path of your feet. You may have to change your schedule. You may have to change your schedule. And bring it back to that which is truly important. We talked about how the need for prioritizing. Prioritizing our time is so very, very important if we're going to serve God. Jesus came to do the will of his Father. And my friends, he set some priorities. There were times whenever he spent time alone in prayer. He went to a mountain to spend time alone. You know, there's some people that get things unbalanced in their life so much. And they don't spend time to regenerate, time in speaking to God one-on-one, spend time reading their Bible. My friends, you need time alone with God. You need time with the Scriptures. You need to carve out time for spiritual pursuits, or they will never get there. They're not going to demand that. You have to demand it. David says, teach me, Lord, to number my days. Teach myself. You can't always put it off. You, there was coming a day whenever you have lost the opportunity to teach your children to memorize scriptures. A day will come when you would have lost those opportunities to pray with your husband and with your wife and to talk with your neighbors and to talk with your mother and father. There's going to come a, t- a day whenever the opportunity is just flat lost. So, I want to talk a little bit about an example in scriptures. I've got to go on. I want to talk about it. Please turn to Acts, the sixth chapter. What does the name martyr mean to you? Well, probably what we're going to go talk about today, this evening. In Acts, the sixth chapter, we're going to talk about Stephen for a little bit. Stephen is called the first Christian martyr. The word martyr denotes somebody who died for a purpose. Now, somebody who just died, you don't really call them a murderer unless they died for, excuse me, they don't really call them a martyr unless they died for a cause. We only usually reserve the word martyr to talk about somebody who died with a purpose in mind. Either they martyred themselves for Islam, or they martyred themselves for Christ, or they were a martyr for this, or that, or the other. Usually, people who are martyrs are people who die with a cause in mind. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We want to be a martyr. In fact, we are a martyr. We're we're dying for a cause, and that cause is going to become evident by the praise accorded to us. We're going to be tested by that. What is that martyrdom going to be for? Is it going to be pleasure? Is it going to be family? Is it going to be Christ? Is it going to be, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? We're going to send a message. What's it going to be? Well, in the book of Acts, we find Stephen being brought to mind. And in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, there's some reasons and there's some things that happen that I want us to look at and maybe just take a step back and 
and realize this is a real story that happened to real people, and sometimes we read too fast. You know, people ask me sometimes if I've seen The Passion, the movie The Passion. And you know, I got, to, I got into this letter writing thing. Before The Passion came out, people said, you know, this one guy wrote an article. Oh, it was horrible. This one guy wrote an article and it got published in the paper. He said, I don't know why Mel Gibson had to spend 15 minutes talking about the scourging of Jesus Christ in his film. He said, in the Bible, it's only in one of the Gospels and it's only in two verses. He says, but Mel Gibson spent 15 minutes on it. <laughs> and I went, that is such a short-sighted observation of what the Bible is trying to say. But you know what? After I watched the movie, yes, I watched it. After I watched the movie, there was something that hit me. Sometimes I read the Bible too fast. Because I'll read that where it says, and they scourged him and go on, and literally all it took was a few seconds to read that verse. When in reality, what that verse meant was 15 minutes of pain and suffering. And so what the movie did, if, I, if it was going to have any impact on me, that was the impact it had, was it made me realize I read too fast sometimes. And so I want to read this about what happened to Stephen a little bit, and I want us to slow it down enough to realize that we're not talking about something that just went just real fast. That this happened over a span of time, and what happened, and let's look at what happened to Stephen for just a moment. Starting reading verse 1 of Acts 6, there's a problem in the early church here. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. The church, you know, it's just getting going. It's just going, go oh, and by the way, you'll notice this is in Acts 6. What's, what does that mean? Well, it isn't until Acts 10 and 11 that the Gentiles come into the church. So who are these Hellenists? What is this talking about here? That somebody group was being, what he's saying is they were all of Jewish lineage in the church, but there were two cultures. There were two cultures in the church. All these people were of the same race, but they were two different cultures. Notice, on the, the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, there was a popular movement among the Jews at this time, the, Hel uh, excuse me, the native Hebrews, who venerated the Hebrew language. And they spoke Hebrew, and they wore Hebrew uh, traditional clothing, and they were, if you will, the conservatives in their culture. And then you had the Hellenists. We would call them the liberals. <laughs> because the Hellenists adopted some of the clothing of the Hellenistic Greeks. They adopted some of their clothing, some of their culture, even some of their architecture in the land that was adopted from the culture. Well, these other people fought against that culture, and they, were, they, they had a culture clash. And what he's saying is, is in the early church, this was a culture class, and one of them was being overlooked by the other or by the others, on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Back then, they didn't have a lot of government programs for widows, and widows were not part, 
uh, uh, of the mainstream business at that time. There were women like Lydia who sold purple and others, but we're not talking about them. Most of the time, the widows were dependent upon the man for their income, and whenever they were destitute, they had to be fed. And so they, the church, they contributed to the needs, and these widows were being fed. In Acts 2, you'll find that contribution happening. So, now what ha what's going on here? There's a complaint. There's a problem. Somebody's being neglected. Verse 2. So the twelve, some of the congregation of the disciples, and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. In other words, he's saying, there, we've got some, what? Priorities here. He said, it's not that we're too good to serve tables. That's not the point. It's that we've got a more important task. It is important for us who are inspired by the Holy Spirit to write and teach what God is giving us. We are messengers. And, these, and, and this other task needs to be performed by someone who will serve. And so whenever he says, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, therefore, verse 3, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men full of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, what kind of response did this uh, solution have a uh, proposed solution have well notice what it says verse 5 and the statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose stephen one of the first names mentioned stephen a man full of faith and of the holy spirit and philip and procurius and nacnor and timian and farmius and nicholas a proselyte from antioch and these they brought before the apostles and after praying they laid their hands on them here was a problem there was a neglect and so what did they have to do? We want you, here's the qualifications. We want men full of, with a good reputation, verse 3. Good reputation, verse 3. Full of the spirit and the wisdom who we may put in charge of this task. What was the task? Feeding widows. As one woman said in Oklahoma City, meals on wheels. <laughs> you know, most people would say, the, a men? Men serving tables? Isn't that the women's? Let's let the women do it. No, he said we want men. Men, men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Why? Why? Because there was a problem there. And they wanted the problem stopped. They wanted this culture clash to be ceased. They wanted this seemingly problem of which food was merely a symptom. They wanted the division in the church healed. And so we're going to have to pick guys that know that it's more than just about giving somebody food. It's making sure that this rift is healed in the church. So we want somebody with wisdom. We want somebody with some good judgment. We want somebody with a good reputation. Somebody who's trusted. Somebody who's trusted. And they pick Stephen. Stephen, a man full of grace and Holy Spirit. This guy was fit for great works. And God needs him at this moment to give a widow a plate of food. He might have got upset about it. You know, I have studied long and hard. I have given myself to know wisdom. I've read all the good books, and you want me to what? Spend my time carting lunch to a bunch of old ladies? what we want you to do. Stephen must have been wiser and understand the task at hand because he took it. He took this job. 
because it was serving God. That's what it was. And he recognized that this was an important task for him to take, that there was more to it than just making sure somebody got the meal, that there was some healing that needed to be brought, that there was some wisdom here. There, and the people were trusting him to make good decisions. And so they picked Stephen. They picked Stephen. Stephen had a good reputation. This is the first we hear about him, and yet he had a good reputation. What You know, this man was prepared for that work, wasn't he? It's amazing what you'll do if you can prepare yourself for a work. You may not know what God has in store for you, but if you will develop a good reputation, if you will, can be considered trustworthy, then sooner or later the Lord is going to be able to use you to accomplish something great in the church. And that's what happened. This man had fulfilled, had fulfilled this qualification. He was a good man. Notice, they brought them before the apostles. They laid hands on them. What was the impact? What, was the, what happened because of this decision? Verse 7. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were coming obedient to the faith. Wow, what a great impact. This, this seemingly beginning of a division in the church not only seemed to be stopped in its tracks, but it led to the growth of the church. There was praise given to God, and priests were being converted. Oh, the Bible, they were the toughest crowd to convert. And the Bible says they were being converted. They saw what Christianity could do. Christianity could heal a culture clash in the other culture. But in Christ, there was peace. Many other passages were to extol this virtue of Christianity throughout the world. Jew and Gentile, was later going to become one in Christ Jesus. Oh, they could see that Christ was indeed the great peacemaker, and they were being converted. Verse 8, it picks up on Stephen. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and Stephen, full of grace and power. The word grace here, uh, sometimes the, the translators have a uh, uh, difficulty knowing which way to translate the word. This word here probably means ability or empowerment. And so probably what it's saying here is Stephen, a man full of ability or, or grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Well, now, Stephen evidently had some spiritual gifts. He had the ability to perform powerful signs and wonders, full of the Holy Spirit. He evidently had more than just the ability to deliver food. He was able to perform signs and wonders, and he was doing it. But verse 9, here's the impact of some of the things that were happening. But some of the men from which is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both... Uh, uh, oh, I had this down before. Corinthians, sorry, and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. In other words, evidently Stephen was preaching too. And the word argued here means debated. In other words, they were exchanging ideas and, and information. So here's what's happening. Stephen is not only doing his daily task of delivering food, he's evidently getting into religious discussions along the way. And in these religious discussions, he's attracting the attention of those who advocate other ideas, and they're debating with him. They're debating with him and getting this debate really going. And notice verse 10, but what happened? But when they were unable to cope with the wisdom and spirit with which he was speaking, but with which he was speaking, then were unable. Evidently, this man has a great mind. He had a great ability of being a public speaker. They were unable to refute what he was saying, to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
So what did these men do? This was going to be the beginning of his downfall because he was being successful. And now what's happened? You know, there's nothing that attracts attention more than being successful. In, in Australia, they call it the tall poppy syndrome. In other words, they, say, they, they have a tendency to cut down people who excel. They call it the tall poppy syndrome because if you stick out, you often get clipped off. <laughs> and that's what was happening here. Stephen was making a name for himself, that he was having an impact. He had developed a good reputation. He had developed a, t a good reputation as a good debater. And now what was happening? They decided they could not deal with him in a straightforward manner. Verse 11. And then they secretly introduced men to say, induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people. They whipped up the people, if you will and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Now, here's what they were going to do. Now, this was a half-truth, but it was a whole lie. Stephen wasn't speaking against Moses and against the law. He was probably telling them that the, the law ended and was nailed to the cross. He was probably telling them that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He was probably telling them that Moses' law stood until Christ, but when Christ came, the law was done away. But the point is, is that's, that wasn't the message. They weren't wanting to explain the doctrine that Stephen was teaching. They were wanting to putting it in the worst possible light. They were intentionally saying, he's speaking against Moses and he's speaking against the law. And this, of course, made Stephen defensive. He had to defend himself, but he was already crucified. He was already spoken bad. He'd already, they say he's speaking against these things. They didn't care about the truth. They told a half-truth, and it made it a whole lie. Yeah, that's what happened. They stirred up the people because of this. And the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Notice verse 13. And they put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses had down to us. Oh, what a horrible thing to change the customs that Moses had down to us. Oh, they weren't talking about what was pleasing to God. That wasn't the point. They were talking about the changes that Jesus was bringing to their culture. And they said, Jesus is a rabble-rouser. He's a subculture. He's going to change the way we live and the, and the traditions of our race. And so they lied, Jesus. You know, you can't really find a lie there, but they were using it to incite the crowds into national fervor against. You know what? That's still going on today in the Middle East. To this very night, these same things are going on. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? The same problems still exist. But notice what was going on here. They had said, this Jesus will destroy this place. Verse 15, and fixing their gaze on him, those who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, we don't necessarily know what the angel of a face, face of an angel looks like, but probably what was happening is Stephen's face was merely content as a messenger of God. He was just saying, you know, they were accusing him of all this, and was it upsetting to him, Stephen? 
Was it really bugging him? Does, does the chapter 7 and Stephen's defense show that he was all upset and everything? No, he just starts out the beginning, says here's the explanation. Starts out, starts explaining. Evidently, he was pretty serene about the whole thing. You know, whenever you're pleasing to God, you can be serene like Stephen. He knew what he was doing was right, even though malicious things were being said, even though false reports were being given. The people were whipped up into a frenzy. Evidently, Stephen was not. That's why the Holy Spirit takes time to point out to him that he wasn't that upset about it. But notice what's going on here. What is going on? Well, we're not going to take time to go through all of what happened here, but I will tell you, Stephen starts making a very logical defense of his whole, the whole point, time to bring him down to Jesus. And then he gets to verse 50 and 51. There's a break here. Most of you who have studied the book of Acts know that something, most commentators say something happened, but they don't know what it is. They don't know what happened. But evidently, the train of thought was interrupted here. We don't know if the, if the audience finally saw where he was going and they finally decided to put an end to this, this sermon, or what went happened, but something changed because the tone changed drastically between verses 50 and 51. And notice what happens in verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Now he's been telling them about their fathers before and all that their fathers had done. And they said, oh yeah, but if we were there, we wouldn't have done that. We don't have time to go into that. But they would have said, yeah, that's, Grandpa did that. But, you know, if we'd have been there, we wouldn't have done that. We'd have learned better. And what, what Stephen is saying is, you're doing it now. You're doing it today. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Verse 52, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murders you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. In verse 54, here's the response. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Oh, they were mad. You might say, Stephen, you're cutting your own throat here. Why don't you just be nice with the audience? Just be nice. You know, don't say the truth here. Not Stephen. Stephen says, here's your problem. You missed the Messiah. You killed the Messiah. You need to repent. You need to repent. Notice, they began gnashing their teeth at him. Oh, they were angry. Verse 55, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently to the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see. He told him what he saw. Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, this Jesus whom you've just killed, I see God the Father honoring him. He has been honored by the Father. He is at the Father's right hand. Notice. But they cried out, verse 57, with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. In other words, this was mob mentality at its finest. They were so angry that this statement just motivated them. They all just rushed upon him. Notice, and when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. Stoning was a form of death, of execution, that took a while. It's not like the guillotine. It's not like shooting somebody. 
Stoning takes a while to kill somebody. First, you injure them in some way. They had a method about it. They would throw somebody into a pit where the stoners would stand around the top of this pit and they would all throw from all sides so that there would be no escape and they would break the person's bones in their feet where they couldn't crawl up the sides of this. They would break their arms. They would sometimes break them and inflict head injuries, all kinds of wounds. But this would take a while. And they, so the Bible uses this term, and they began stoning him. In other words, you, you had to take a while. This takes a while. When you think to pick up a rock and throw it at someone, and then go back for another one, you've got to, at some point, consider what you're doing and why. But these guys were just mad, and they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man same, same, named Saul. Verse 59, and they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And they went on stoning him. They just kept on. Evidently, they kept on. And now Stephen's having to take the opportunity to pray to his father. He realized that he's going to die. And they, while he's praying to God, they continue to stone him. Continue to stone him. You know, I am so glad that the text doesn't end right there. Because in the next verse, we get an insight into what was in the heart of Stephen upon this occasion. Not only is he praying, that's something all you and I would do, but we might not think of the next thing that the Bible records. You know, I'm sure he was thinking about what had been said about Jesus, who had just been crucified not that long ago. And the statements of Jesus on the cross were still on his mind. And what happened? Listen to what he says. And then falling on his knees, verse 60, he cried out with a loud voice saying, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The words of Jesus were what was on his mind and in his heart. He was a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he asked himself, what did Jesus do in this situation when he was about to be killed? He said, Father, hold this, do not lay this sin against them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you know what? He said, that's something that I ought to think about. And so he prayed for the forgiveness of those who were stoning him in imitation of Jesus Christ. There's nothing, I think, that speaks more to the character of Stephen than that one little insight into what was going on in Stephen's mind while he was being stoned. He was not hurling curses. May you and your children be cursed forever. He wasn't hurling abuses at them. He wasn't wishing their demise. He knew they were ignorant of what was really going on. And he knew they were mad because they didn't understand the truth. And so he prayed, Father, forgive them. What an amazing character Stephen had. He was worthy of being the first Christian martyr he died for the cause of Jesus Christ. But when Stephen started out that day, do you think he had on his to-do list, go feed sister so-and-so, go make sure that the older men are fed and that, that old couple over there are taken care of, make sure this person, and then, uh, oh, and take lunch over there, and oh, about that time, uh, go start a debate, get hauled into court, and, and become a martyr at about 
Do you think that was on his list that day? No. When he started out his day, he did not realize that he wasn't coming home that evening. But he knew what he was going to do whenever he went out. He was going to serve God that day. He was going to serve God. He had made up his mind he was going to serve God that day. And he was serving God whenever he was delivering it. He was serving God when he was teaching. He was serving God when he was defending himself. He was serving God, preaching this sermon. And it cost him his life. He was a martyr that day. You know, not very many people in the world get to choose to be a martyr. It often happens to them. It often just happens. When we became a Christian, did we consider the fact that we were choosing to be a martyr that very day? Isn't the fact whenever we become a Christian that we die to self and we live for him? Isn't the essence of becoming a Christian the decision that the rest of our life is the Lord's, whether we live or die? It is the Lord's. The decision about Stephen's martyrdom had been made long before the day, that day that it happened. He had already given his life for the Lord. And that was the moment that he was going to give it to the very end. He was going to give it all that day. He chose to be a martyr long before the event happened. And that was pondering the path of his feet. He knew that whenever he stepped up and said, I will follow you, Jesus. I will follow you into death. I will be buried with you in the likeness of your death and raised in the likeness of your resurrection just to follow in your steps. And wherever those steps go, there I will go. But my life is no longer mine. My life is hidden with Christ and God. Paul, later in, Gen in, in the book of Galatians, in Galatians 2.20, he was to make this very plain, that this was considered part of his thinking. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You see, Paul had it right. Paul got it. Whenever you become a Christian, you say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am crucified with Christ. Paul died a long time before he stopped living. He died long before he stopped living. I hope you haven't there's a lot of people who stop living before they die. Have you stopped living before you die? As long as you have life, my friends, you can serve the Lord. You can serve Him every day. Every day you wake up, you can say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? I breathe and I live for your glory. How can I serve you today? And God may want you to serve meals to widows. He may want you to go help out someone who is in need of help. The Bible says, be zealous for good works. I don't know what you can do, but as long as you have life, you can serve the Lord. Or you might be called upon to die for the Lord that day. Oh, Glenn, those are nice stories, but Christians today don't die for the Lord. Really? Really? Interesting. Cast
Nancy Burnell, 17 years old, Columbine High School, got her homework, went to Columbine Senior High School, Tuesday morning, April 20th, 1999, was doing a homework in the library when a young man came up to her and said, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Like the book that was written about the event says, she said yes. The young man pulled the trigger and killed her. Well, Christians don't die today, or those who are martyred for Christ. She may not have been a Christian. But my friends, she became a martyr for her faith anyway. A 17-year-old girl doing her homework in a library at a high school. April 20th, 1999. She said yes. And she died. What would you say? You would say, Lord, I know I would say yes. You know, you don't know if you were put in that situation. But you could hope, you could pray that you could say yes. As one writer who wrote a song about that event said, she passed a test that no one wants to take. I don't want to take that test today. But maybe I am required today to make an answer, to give an answer. Do I believe in God today? Now, at this moment, somebody may walk up and it may require my very life. Doug Edwards told me about a preacher in India that got beat up for preaching to Hindus. I've heard stories about brethren who may have been shot in the Philippines for believing in the name of Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of things that go on in the world. You know, we don't know whether there's a bunch of congregations of people in the the hidden realms of China. They've got the word of God there. And the Bible says the pure seed of the kingdom will bring forth fruit. Just because they don't own me doesn't mean they don't exist. There may be all kinds, and we may not know the stories of brothers and sisters throughout history that we may never know. It may never be recorded in a book what they did for the cause of Jesus Christ. But don't tell me that people don't die for the cause of Christ today. They may. They have a legacy. They have a legacy. What's your legacy tonight? What is your legacy? Have you already died and your life is hid with Christ and God? Make up your mind that if that situation, before it ever comes, what your answer will be. Before the time is robbed from you, before the abilities have been sucked from you, before time takes away your memory. Before God, before the world erases some of your energy, 
Your life needs to stand for something. While it is day, work while it is day, for the night comes when no man can work. You need to take time and opportunity while you have and stand up and stand for something and say it loud and say it often about why you live and what you're living for. You need to make a difference. Oh, your name may never be on the side of a hospital room or wing. It may never be recorded in history, but I'll guarantee you somebody whose soul is saved may point to what you said or did as making an eternal difference in their life. There's one song that has encouraged me greatly. A song called, Thank You for Giving to the Lord. Have you all, any of you heard that song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord? It talks about a man who went to heaven and someone came up to him and said, you know that quarter you put in the collection? Well, it paid for a preacher to come to my village and I heard the gospel and I want to thank you for giving to the Lord. Because that's why I'm here today. And it says, one by one, they came. And they said, thank you for giving to the Lord. And then Jesus turned them around and saw all the people that this person had affected and said, great is your reward. My grandfather's not around to see the baptism of my children. But I'll guarantee you, that's part of his legacy. Now what's yours? What's yours? I challenge you tonight to make a difference for the cause of Jesus Christ. Don't waste the days. Don't waste all of the time. If you have ambitions, Grab them, do something, work while it is day. Make a difference. Don't continue to just have regrets every New Year saying, you know, I'm going to use the same resolution again. No, say, I'm going to talk to that person. I'm going to make a list of my friends. I'm going to make a difference today. Stephen and his legacy is recorded for us. What about your legacy? What about your legacy? I know of significant people who've helped me. I'm so thankful. My father made every vacation. He only had a few weeks vacation every year. And he hauled us back to Sulphur, Oklahoma and camped so that we could go to a meeting and meet other Christian kids. And my dad was poor and he didn't have a lot of vacation time. And he could have easily spit it on himself. But he was investing the future in us, in us boys. And we all thank my dad for that. We never realized how expensive it was for him, knowing that he only had those two weeks and he spent them and his, with his kids in a car in Sulphur, Oklahoma. Give me a break. Somebody needs an award for that. Whenever you want to go on vacation, do you want to go to Sulphur, Oklahoma with a bunch of kids in a car? He wasn't thinking about having a great physical time. He was thinking of the spiritual welfare of us kids. That's what I'm saying. 
I want your kids to remember that you took time not doing necessarily what you wanted to do because you thought something else was more important. And that is where you get your legacy. Because regardless of what you want your legacy to be, it may not be what you want it to be, but it will be truthful and it will be what is really, really was important to you. So moms, be the best mom you can be. Husbands, be the best husbands you can be. Wives, be the best wife you can be. Brothers and sisters in the church, let it be known that you were someone who put the cause of Christ first and that you love the brethren and that you love the lost and that you spent time doing the important things and you spent time healing rifts and you spent time investing in eternal things and what was known about you was that you wanted to go to heaven, you wanted to please God, you were laying up treasures in heaven, you wanted to make sure your legacy was eternal and not temporal. My friends, in two generations, they're not gonna care how much money you had, how, what kind of car you drove, or anything else. But if people are obeying the Lord, it's gonna be, make a difference. So tonight, won't you start your spiritual legacy this evening. Have you thought about it that today could be the day? Young people, have you thought about that today could be the day that sometime in the future, if God allows generations to happen, that there was one night somewhere when somebody decided to give their life to Jesus Christ and because of that, it affected my mother, it affected my father, it affected my brother, it affected my sister, it affected my family, it affected me. me. So tonight, you can make an eternal difference tonight if you will give your life to Jesus Christ. In your faith, repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess the name of Jesus Christ before men, Matthew 10, 32, and be baptized for the remission of your past sins, Acts 2 and verse 38. And then, upon that moment that you're raised from the watery grave of baptism, you can go on and that life, no matter how long or short it might be, you can go on with that life, walking in newness of life and awaiting the resurrection. And there you will receive your reward. But tonight, it's got to start somewhere. Let today be the day of salvation for you and for all those upon whom your legacy will affect. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.